Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. You're here with blaring the Claxons, Jamesy. <laughs> and all hands on deck, Brando. And hey, we're back with more about the Squalus, the deep rescue of the Squalus submarine. Where we last left off the people, Brando, remember the, uh, the water had flooded in. They were sitting in 224, no, 242 feet of water. The thick red smudge smoke had escaped to, uh, to mark their area. And it was just before 9 a.m. We need some dramatic music here. We need a little dramatic, you know, tension building music. Okay, I, I can add that in. No, you're just supposed to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so tell the listener to imagine some the tension building music of their choice. Imagine the tension building <laughs> music of your choice, listener. <laughs> By eleven o'clock, operation officers at the sub base were worrying about not having heard from the squalus. They reported this to the commandant of the yard, who then initiated emergency procedures to try to locate the Squalus. The Sculpin, the sister ship to the Squalus, was ordered to sea to locate the missing sub. And at 12.40, four hours after the dive started, a sixth smoke bomb was released. On board the Sculpin, Lieutenant Denby glanced back at the direction from which they had come and saw the smoke. The Sculpin had made a quick turn and headed in that direction. Soon, the crew of the Sculpin spotted the telephone and rescue buoy. The men of the Squalus heard the sounds of the Sculpin's propellers and another smoke bomb was released, this one spreading the red smudge directly in front of the Sculpin. So four hours of cold and <laughs> cold and silence. Remember, they were sitting in 30-degree Fahrenheit water. Yeah, why, had, are you, why are you like, let's do a test dive in this cold-ass water? In case anything right. goes wrong, we'll just freeze to death i don't know that i'm always thinking of in case of issues the sub had no power yeah no heat they had one remember they had one can of food (laughs) yikes one can did they tell you what kind of food it was some of that stuff's nasty some of that beans. It's probably baked oh, beans. Yeah, one, like you need yeah, that. one can of beans and a, and a little bit of emergency water to drink. But four hours in the cold, dark silence, just sitting and waiting with no communication at all, does, except for except for the thoughts in your head. <laughs> or uh, hey, does anyone know ninety nine bottles of beer on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> 99 bottles of beer on the wall. 99 <laughs> bottles of beer. Take one down, pass hey. it around. 98 bottles of beer on the wall. And that, what's, and what's, that what's, the second, what's the second verse? <laughs> yeah, it's the same as the first. Uh, okay, so after those eight minutes are done, you're going to like, does anybody know any good sea shanties? <laughs> does anybody know any 
Who knows Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle? <laughs> Who can beatbox here? I don't know. What are you doing to entertain yourself and keep your mind off of the uh, the whole idea like you're in a, a tin can at the bottom of the ocean. No one knows you're there necessarily. You don't know if anybody's knowing that you're there. I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, Lieutenant Naquin said to all of them, I want you to just quietly say these four letters <laughs> to yourself in your head. S-T-F-U. <laughs> Just sit there. I don't know. Don't make a sound. I want you to put yourself in his his shoes as the commander or the person in charge of this. It's just like to me a lot like that. Uh, the Boy Scout group in uh, Thailand in the cave gets gets stuck there. The person who's responsible for them or the person in charge. Somebody's got to take a leadership role to help out. Otherwise, it's just chaos. Uh, right. You right. know. So, what do you? Do? How? I think it would show such a strength of character. I mean, what do you do to to keep these men going? I mean, you're not going to go, okay, gang. Looks like we're dead. Looks like we've we've run our course. <laughs> Write out your final wishes, your final words. I don't know. Well, remember they had the lieutenant Naquin was taking charge, right? Yes, he, he got the he got the emergency procedure started, but again, he knew. That we're in a shit deep uh, trouble. A shit spot with <laughs> limited amount of gas to breathe, limited amount of oxygen limited, for us just to have, limited, limited amount of yeah. soda lime to absorb the CO two. Right. They knew they like they had to get some sort of reaction from the surface. Right. And right now they're getting that. Right. Oh, I, and I, again, I think that's a sign of a good leader. It's, uh, yeah. Let's figure out what we have, what we can do, what our abilities are, and what we need to do. Well, carefully, the sculpin was brought alongside the telephone buoy, and it was lifted aboard, but for only half a minute. <laughs> okay. So, like, uh, hopefully they didn't start with any small talk, like, hey. <laughs> How you doing? How you doing? Uh, uh, I know how you do. What's up? What's up? Have you thought about your car warranty? <laughs> <laughs> the emergency uh, telephone buoy was lifted aboard the uh, sculpin there, but for half a minute, they were in direct communication with the crew in the forward torpedo room of the Squalus. Then the bow of the sculpin surged up on a wave, and the buoy cable and telephone line was snapped in half. That's some bad luck there. Ugh. Could you imagine? Who was holding that? Why didn't they give a little slack in it and understand, you know, we got some heavy seas here? Well, remember, this is really like the first real yeah. deep, deep rescue of a submarine ever occurring. I know, but this isn't too... They're, they're, they're learning on the fly. Yeah, but you have to anticipate. They probably didn't even have one of those coily telephone lines. It was no, probably just a straight did. cable. And <laughs> that's where the coily telephone line was invented, right there. It's like, if only we had a stretchy, coily line that wouldn't snap uh, in high seas. This could also work in my living room and kitchen. This would allow my teenage son <laughs> to be upstairs... <laughs> 
with the phone downstairs. Do you remember those days? You might not. Right. You, 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 oh, you know. we had a telephone cord because the only telephone was in the, the kitchen. Yes, that's so that, what that, I'm ca- that about. telephone cord was like 30 feet long and it was yes. coily, so it stretched to about 62. Yeah, when you got the the extra long one, that was a big. That was like getting a mobile phone, like the first mobile phone. Like you could walk outside with it. We thought that was the greatest. Oh man, yeah, like you were the king. Like you talk to to uh, you know buddies or <laughs> the girl you've been hitting on. You, you take the yeah. phone outside so nobody can listen to you. Exactly. Exactly. By twelve forty five, the Navy Department had been informed of the squalous disaster, and immediately. One of the biggest submarine rescue and salvage operations in naval history began to unfold. Divers and salvage personnel and crews of salvage ships and tugs were recalled to their vessels. The ASR, a submarine rescue vessel, Falcon, got steam up and headed toward the sunken Squalus under forced draft. On deck was the McCann Submarine Rescue Bell that had been developed after the S-4 disaster in 1927. And that S-4 disaster, Brando, that was when a, you know, a similar submarine in the, the late 1920s was accidentally rammed by a Coast Guard destroyer ship, and all of those men perished. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a crazy, crazy story in and of itself because it's... They lost the sub, they lost yeah. most of the people, and they were about to rescue a couple of them, but then a crazy storm came in, and just a, a that's a yeah a crazy story all in a, it, its own right. Well, if we change the name of this podcast to the Great Submarine Rescue Crash Podcast, <laughs> Sinking Rescue Podcast, it'll be a perfect story for it. Well, we we did get a, <laughs> a, 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 we did get a couple of emails from people of, like really liking the the well, submarine salvage. This is a perfect. Stories. This is a perfect yeah. because actually this is diving. We are going to get into the diving portion of this because this is again the three divers who uh, were instrumental in the rescue of these submariners all received the Medal of Honor. Right, and I mean because this is in a day when you know again diving. Is not just hey, let's uh, take a vacation, go down to the Cayman right. Islands, and look at some fishies. I mean, diving was a serious Infancy, yeah. job. Yes. Oh, it's still a serious fucking job. What are they? Come on, come on. Those who don't take it seriously. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, it wasn't yeah. done just because you had a afternoon on, to, <laughs> to to go down and no, look at the working. pretty colors, right? Like you, you got called. In for a diving job because it, it, it was time to get to work. It's serious business. Yeah, working diving yeah. is completely different. That was, you know, one of the biggest things going into commercial schools. They make sure you understand you're not going down to look at pretty fish and swim around. You're on the clock. You're not fucking around. You're taking care of business. And it's a blue-collar, hard-ass job. And... uh completely different mentality you don't get to say i'm not going i'm not going diving today because my my nose is stuffy you don't get to say that or you get fired i mean if you do want to say it you just go okay well next next take the helicopter to to land and we'll get the next guy but um and also no this is one of the first uses of of heliox of mixed gas helium and back in that that time the use of it wasn't mainstream, you know, spread out like it is now in recreational 
what I mean, it's recreational tech diving. It was they were f- figuring that out on the fly as exactly. well. Exactly. It was very unknown. And we, we can go a little bit into that, James, uh, when we get to that area, because there are thoughts on uh, using helium and how why oxygen is toxic. We're all in their infancy. They, don't, they weren't understanding it completely. But the guy who, who invented the Momsen lung, he has a, some good takes on it. He gives a speech. He gives a speech at Harvard uh, after this in 1939 regarding the rescue of the uh, Squalus personnel and the recovery of the Squalus, too. Uh, just amazing stories. I mean, uh, we're really opening up a, like a can of worms. We're opening getting, up a, a can of the... semen, actually. It's a tin can of semen. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Commander McCann was on board to be in charge of Bell Rescue if this was required. Lieutenant Commander Momsen was detailed to the rescue of supervised escape via the escape lungs which he had developed if this was the chosen method of rescue. Lieutenant Benke, Navy medical officer and dive accident specialist, was also on board. Fourteen divers and a diving officer had arrived from Newport just as the Falcon was leaving the dock. These 14 divers, plus seven in the ship's company, would be the initial diving team. The tug, Pennacock, with Admiral Cole aboard, left Portsmouth for the one-hour run to the site of the sinking. The large tug, Wandank, was next to reach the scene. She used her oscillators to try and communicate with the Squalus while the Pennacock began dragging a heavy grapnel that eventually hooked onto the sub. During the night, the rescue fleet continued to grow. A cruiser, two Coast Guard patrol boats, the tug Chandler, and, at daybreak, a patrol plane that circled overhead to try to spot any of the crew that might escape from the Squalus with escape lungs. Yeah, little did... Well, they must have known they were down in 240 feet of water, yeah, by this time, yeah, they, they'd hooked into them. They got a, a feel for where they're at. They broke the 252-foot telephone cord. <laughs> <laughs> so they got, they got an idea. If only it had been a coily cord. But now they're finally getting, you know, a, a crew right. out there. Right. So they got had a little bit of communication. And then just through that whole night, they're still just sitting there waiting while the operations topside begin to grow yeah and they can't know what the hell's going on so i guess the first communications between the topside and the the the, uh submariners is going to be a big deal right it's uh going to really help those guys out as far as mentally well right like when we go back to that s4 sub you know yeah that was that that big disaster you know, they had six guys, you know, surviving in that uh, torpedo room that were trapped in there. And they ended up, you know, sending down a diver. You know, they were tapping on the hull Morris code to these guys. Right. You know, it's and, and you know, one of the guys there, you know, what was awarded the Medal of Honor because he went down risking his life with that storm coming, trying to get 
communicate. Like an, air, an air hose down oh, to the geez. to the guys, you know, and you know they tapped on the hole. Is there any hope? You know, and he tries tapping back. We're doing everything we can to the guys just sitting in there. You know, it just uh, that's a crazy story. There's a lot of crazy stories in the diving world, in the submariner world, world, and uh, commercial diving world. In the especially in the early days, we've we've honed it a little bit, but I I have to believe there's still crazy shit that that they do. Oh yeah, I and mean, it's uh, it's a lot like the early days of technical diving and early days of cave diving, and I would say early days of just scuba diving too. You know, right. That whole learning curve of of decades of like, yeah, we kind of got it figured out. Oh shit, <laughs> maybe we don't. <laughs> Whoopsie, didn't see that Whoopsie. one coming. Whoopsie, yeah. Before dawn on May twenty fourth, the next day, the rescue vessel Falcon arrived with the divers and the rescue chamber on board. The commanding officer, Lieutenant George Sharp. Worked in dark, stormy conditions to lay a six-anchor chain and buoy mooring system that would securely hold the rescue vessel directly over the sunken Squalus. By 0646, is that, is that how they say that, 0646 or 0646? 0646, it, do, it doesn't matter. I mean, 0646, O-Dark 30, that's not really O-Dark 30, it's O-Dusk 30, or Dawn 30. No, we just called it whatever, you know, 0646, but yeah, 0600, oh, we always just said oh, not zero, but who knows? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, <laughs> am I the one that's going to bring this conversation back back into, into the lane? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> by <laughs> by 0646, the rescue vessel completed her moor. 22 hours had passed since the Squalus had touched on the bottom. In the Squalus, cold was beginning to affect the crew. Temperature inside the vessel was already down to 46 degrees Fahrenheit. Men who had been in the water as they escaped from the after-engine room into the control room Isaacs, Blanchard, Manns, and O'Hara were suffering most from the intense cold. Lieutenant Naquin gathered up all the blankets available and gave one of all the men his own jacket for warmth. All were listening intently and apprehensively to the sounds of the rescue ship and gear working over their sunken boat. On board the Falcon, Conventional surface-supplied helmet diver gear was being rigged. The Falcon was also supplied complete sets of dive equipment for using the recently developed mix of oxygen and helium as a breathing gas. However, while this mix had been used experimentally several times by many of the rescue divers, no diver had ever used it under the conditions of depth, cold, and urgency now facing the salvage and rescue personnel. The divers and rescue officials felt it was better to go with equipment and breathing gas they knew the most about. Kind of, I mean, they're kind of like the, the, I don't want, I keep wanting to call it recreational, and it is recreational tech people, but 
you remember the early days, nobody wanted to use Trimix. And I, when I say early days, I'm talking the 90s. Nobody wanted to use it. It's, you know, the devil's mix. And you, they thought you would you were way more apt to have decompression sickness with helium than with uh, air. Right, because it was still new. Um, a couple people that were trying it that really didn't know anything about it yet. Were, they were burned d- as witches. Uh, right. <laughs> Well, and there was some accidents using it. Well, of course, there's accidents using air, but nobody seemed to point that out either. Aha, uh-huh, right. That was one of the big... Well, that's a flaw in the argument. You know, it's a fallacy in the debate. That So it's everywhere. It's it's in politics. It's in diving. It's in raising a family. I have, I have to have debates with my children. Just, you know, what are we having for dinner? And then I have to, I have to go all critical thought on their asses and show them the... the faults of their argument you have no ground to stand on we are having mashed potatoes dad last time you made mashed potatoes <laughs> we all got salmonella false mashed potatoes you also gives all you, mashed potatoes gives you salmonella we don't want exactly. salmonella again hence we're not having mashed potatoes and you all also had your mother's cooking at the same time so anyway I'm kidding, of course. My mother's great. My mother. My wife is a great cook. Their mother. Uh, as am I. I do most of the cooking. I don't want to. I don't want to receive any backlash from the, you know, the various groups of people that will mob up and get you for any untoward comment or perceived untoward comment. So, here's the fallacy in their argument: just because my wife cooks. Does it make me a male chauvinist pig? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where were we? Yeah, you you remember because uh, you remember Hal Watts was one of the guys that deep air that guy. tried diving, you know, helium early on. Yeah. Had an issue, rocketed to the surface, you know, in an emergency ascent, and got crazily bent and blamed it on the helium is why he got bent not yeah. rocketing to the surface and so like th- there was a lot of like just misconception of like oh it was the helium that wait could the, have been the rocketing the violent, to the surface the violent decompression <laughs> yeah i mean again this is this is in every aspect of of anything in life and and so you just gotta approach it's with the sound sane mind and, and just try to take it apart with some critical thought. So again, I just like to compare it to, to what was going on then and what was going on in our world of uh, what I would say, non-commercial, non-working diving. I, I hesitate to call tech diving recreational. It's recreational in the sense that we're not working per se, but it's still not recreational diving like is taught in, a, in an open water class. Right. No, I, I hear you. While the diving gear was being readied for the first dive to the Squalus, other crew members were rigging the McCann submarine rescue bell. This is a steel device about 11 feet tall and weighing 18,000 pounds. It has a maximum outside diameter of nearly eight feet, tapering at the bottom to five feet. The bottom of the bell is open and in a groove has a rubber gasket which seals on a skirt around the escape hatch of the submarine. The chamber is divided into three compartments, the upper or control compartment, the lower compartment, and the ballast tanks. 
Necessary fittings and connections are found on the top outside hull for air supply and vent hoses, electrical wiring and telephone cables. A hatch in the top permits entry and exit of the operators and rescued personnel. Between the upper and lower compartments, a second hatch permits access into the lower open end of the bell and thus into or out of the sunken submarine when the bell is mated to the escape hatch. All operating valves and fittings are located in the upper compartment of the chamber. An air-driven motor pulls the bell down to the submarine by reeling in a wire previously attached to the submarine escape hatch ball by a diver. Usually, the chamber operates at atmospheric pressure since the internal compartment of a submarine from which the crew is to be rescued will also be at atmospheric pressure, or nearly so. So it in and of itself is like a... uh is a small submersible. Of course, it's got it, it's uh, tethered, right? It's got right, yeah, uh, steel cables and and all of the communication, everything, just like a uh, a commercial diver, a hard hat divers, uh, got the gas supply and everything coming from the surface, the the comms and and a in a way line, that's kind of yeah. in a way that's kind of what it is. It, exactly. It's just like a big giant hard hat. Exactly that you can that, that fit semen in. Fit a, <laughs> it's like a big hard hat full of semen. I don't know if we're giving people the wrong idea out there, or the right idea. I can see the I can see the next Apple Podcast comment coming. <laughs> Five stars. One the great, the great semen podcast is my favorite show. Yeah, but in 1927, that the loss of that S4 submarine that we kind of briefly mentioned, and then there was another one in 1925. You know, th- these lost submarines and all the submariners that died inside of them. You know, is kind of what, what began the need for the invention of this McCann submarine rescue chamber, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the more that the uh, submarine developed and the more uh, it was used by the military, the more they realized we're going to need rescue, a rescue procedure and rescue equipment to be developed so that we can save, A, our, our investment in the, the personnel and, B, our investment in the equipment uh, should it go down? Because the more, again, it's just statistical. It, the more that's out there working, the more that are going to go down, right? So you got to have your little, you don't even need to be a psychic or have a crystal ball. You can just go, hey, we're going to need develop, to develop something and some equipment. So let's get some smart people on it. Right, right. And there were, I mean, there were several things in the works already. I don't, you know, we talk about the Momsen lung, and there was a uh, a Davis submerged escape apparatus, kind of similar, basically oxygen rebreather kind of thing. Um, right, and that was kind of like what the Momsen lung was yes. too was mm-hmm. a was an emergency oxygen rebreather. And of course, that's it's only good at certain depths for so long, kind of thing. I mean, the, right, but it, it's basically a way to you know because the. 
you know that led to the uh, the, the stinky hood. <laughs> you like to call it. You like that stinky hood, right? <laughs> well, if, if the guy had bad breath, it definitely would be a stinky hood. <laughs> but no, named after uh, Lieutenant Harris Stanky. Uh, like that was like another inflatable jacket with a hood that would completely enclose you in like a bubble, shooting you, you know, a uh, breathable gas and, and flotations. Yeah. And then, like, we remember when we did the stuff about the the blow and go, right? The blow and go also became a preferred method from, right. from escaping out of these, right? Just that was part not of going to anything. Yeah. Just go out and... Uh, yeah, get in the chamber. Can you just imagine, though, you're... You know, I don't know if, if you've ever been in a... You've been in a decompression chamber, recompression chamber, chamber, yeah. right? Well, just getting locked in in just air can be uh, tense to some, you know, if you're claustrophobic oh, yeah, yeah. at the very least, but knowing you're getting locked in there. Uh, but just imagine you're getting locked in, and then they're going to fill it with water, and it has to go completely full before they can open the hatch for you to get out. And you can't test if that hatch is going to open until, <laughs> until, until it's time <laughs> so, to open it. So it's like some something's jammed in it. You could run into some issues. Yeah, there's no. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Let, let, let. let me take one more breath. <sighs> but just the the thought of having to do that, and part of the training in submariners is they have to do, uh, you know, an escape. And I know it used to be a hundred foot free ascent kind of thing, punchy in the gut, so you expel all your your gas out of your lungs and. Right. That was the, that was the blow and go. Yeah. By ten ten, Martin Conrad Sabitsky had been dressed in his 200 pounds of air-supplied helmet gear. He was a good choice for this difficult dive. He was young, tough, and experienced. He had made many practice dives in connection with hooking up the rescue bell and knew just what he had to do. But he had never made a working dive in 242 feet of cold water before. Right, And this is where we were talking about the, you know, Okay, helium or good old air. <laughs> yeah. You know, and for the longest time in, in the, the growth of technical diving, the, the reason air stuck around for so long was the fact that nobody was really working with the helium enough yet. So the, a lot of just the old school people were like, well, we know what comes with diving air deep. It sucks, but you tough it out and you deal with it. That's that's what men do. That's why men are t- tough technical divers, and we are you know, the men are tough deep divers. You just deal with your air, and because that's what you do. Damn it! You don't well, need your it science, it, and your helium, <laughs> and your your education. Yeah, but it doesn't really suck that you're getting narked. It's you know, it's having a few cocktails. You're you're for most people, you're getting a little more loosened up. Some take it the other way, but... At 10.12, he was hoisted over the side of the Falcon into the water and worked his way forward to the cable leading up from the grapnel snagged on the squalus. He checked his gear and left the surface. At 10.17, his heavy shoes landed with the dull thud of lead on steel. Sibitsky knew he was on the deck of the squalus. 
but where? He's playing with the machine guns. <laughs> These are pretty cool. That's <laughs> 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 what every boy, every kid on the... Uh, it's a marine. Uh, in, in Dude, it's the periscope. <laughs> look, look. Can you guys see me putting her face at it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Brando, it this is over three hundred feet long. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it's you got to find it's understandable. Them. Like, where yeah, the hell? Like, so where we the got hell? it. But. Yeah, you can go up and down that thing, banging, banging, banging. Right. Remember, we compared it a little bit last week to to the uh, Titan, that Ocean Gate Titan sub, yeah. which is like a tiny little bubble of a submarine. Yeah, what was that? And this is a 20, 300, yeah. 300 foot long Navy ship. Yeah, football field, you got to go up and down and knocking on it, see if there's anybody still alive. So Visibility was much better than anyone thought it would be. He could see 30 to 40 feet in all directions. So even still, like you land on that ship. I mean, even if you're pretty well versed in what the ship looks like, like knowing, you know, the difference uh, of where the engine room is compared to the torpedo room, right? Where the control room is compared to the escape hatch. You know, it's going to take you a minute of like 30 feet of visibility. You're going to, Walk around, walk around, uh, you know, till you, you know, see something that you recognize to get your bearings of where you're at. Yeah. Yeah, it's no easy task, even the, this portion of it, so. He needed good visibility. The cold numbed his touch, and narcosis numbed his thinking. And so much depended on his observations and reports to topside salvage and rescue personnel. Sabitsky turned slowly around, mentally absorbing everything within sight. In the slurred voice of a man at great depth, on air, he reported, I've landed on the submarine, he told his talker topside. I am on the bow of the Squalus. Then he leaned over and took a look at the object on deck. I am looking at the forward anchor winch. Now he turned to face aft. The grapnel had snagged just six feet from the torpedo room escape hatch through which the trapped submariners must escape. He reported this to the surface and asked them to send him the rescue bell downhaul cable. Sabitsky stamped his lead-soled shoes on the deck to let the crew of the Squalus know he was there. Answering bangs on the hull with a hammer told him some of the crew were alive and just a thin metal hull away from him. He got some slack in the downhaul cable, unscrewed the shackle pin, placed the open end over the ball of the escape hatch, and replaced the shackle pin, securing it with the safety wire to prevent loss. Over the telephone, he reported, Job completed. He received three pulls on his lifeline, telling him to stand by to come up. And when he answered, four pulls told him he was going to be pulled up. His feet cleared the deck of the Squalus at 10.39. He reached the surface at 11.24 and was placed in the recompression chamber for further decompression. 
so what they're doing there, and I'm sure this is in its early development too, is what's called the SIRDO2 or surface decompression procedures, what, which most of the time we used oxygen. Um, so what you do is you, you do staged decompression up to your 40-foot stop. In their case, it would be the 40-foot stop. And then they had to take them out of the water and get them into a chamber and blown back down to 50 feet. That was back in that day. It's a little bit different, you know, at least when I was in commercial school as well. From what I understand, not much has changed since I was in commercial school. I did talk to a a guy who graduated from a a commercial school, and they still do, they still use the SIRDO2 procedures quite extensively. I think it's a, a pretty pretty much a mainstay in the commercial diving world. So basically, you do your dive, you come up to 40 foot. I've heard it; they come up to 30 foot as well. But uh, you have three and a half minutes to get out of the water, get the diver out of the hard hat and out of their suit and get them into the chamber and blown down. And they would go get down, back, get yeah, back down to depth, depth. and then restart right. the decompression again. Exactly. So you get blown down to ten feet past the last stop. So if your last stop was thirty feet, you get blown down to forty feet. If your last right. stop is forty feet, you get blown down to fifty feet, which I believe is probably what they did in in their their circumstance. And then you would be on a hundred percent oxygen for the surd, what we call the surdo two uh, decompression procedures. They do do it on air, and they that's a fallback. I guess you could plan it as well. I don't know why you would plan using air if you've got oxygen. You know, if you've got a, a chamber there, you'll have oxygen there. But, right, right. But um, it's there's a fallback if if you have an O2 tox hit kind of thing, an oxygen toxicity episode. So you just switch them over to the air tables, put them on air, and now your decompression in the chamber is going to be that much longer, you know, because oxygen accelerates decompression for us, makes a cleaner deco. Right, because we're talking uh, basically a 250-foot dive that he did yeah. for 30 minutes. Yeah. Right? Or just about. I mean, he went in at 10.10 roughly, got out at 10.40 roughly. Right? So basically 30 minutes in a in two hundred little over 240, so call it 250 feet of water. If you look at yeah. the Navy table, that's given nearly two hours of decompression for him to do is that the table? If, if he were to do it all in, in water, in water, yeah, yeah, right. So that's a, a lot of time for for them to to monitor that guy and just hanging coming up. So the idea is okay. They they basically gave him what he uh, left the he left the the deck at ten thirty nine and reached the surface at eleven twenty four, right. So they basically put them through about 45 minutes of decompression coming up. Up in the and then, water. And then they're going to give them the rest of that time in a chamber on the Falcon. Right, and that's according to the dive table. So it's it's kind of a cool procedure as far as uh, commercial diving operations go because now you can decompress in a warm environment. You're not in your heavy gear sitting in the water. And as we all know, you know, if any technical diver out there knows, it's one thing to do a long dive that requires extensive deco in a cave where you have a very controlled environment to accomplish deco. Um, you don't have to worry about weather changing, boat issues, being so far out to sea kind of thing versus 
actually in water decompression in the open ocean, things can change so quickly and your decompression be, can be interrupted, which means you're going to be in a world of hurt, literally right, and figuratively. Right. Yeah. So you, you bring those divers up, commercial diving operations, you bring them up in chambers so they can sit on the deck in a chamber and be monitored and they're in a warm, dry environment. You can really crank the O2 up you know, to several times the, the, the accepted, you know, 1.6 that we use as, as the max, right? They, they crank it up to three and even four, you know. Right. <laughs> there's, no, there's no fear of toxing and drowning right. when if, you're sitting in a, in a chamber, yeah. Exactly. And the, to try to sit there for an hour and a half, two hours of decompression out in open ocean, it can get dicey. And uh, I would say that's more dangerous than the 250-foot the diving part. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, they'll still do it, especially if the deco required is is minimal. And, and you'll be on a – if you're in a hard hat, you'll be on what's called a stage, which is basically like a, a small platform that might hold two, two divers, might even hold just one diver, but it's hooked to a crane, and they control your depth from the surface – Right, right. Using that crane, yeah, it's, that it's winch, bringing yeah, you up. it's bringing you up, and it'll it'll make your stops for you. They do everything up at the surface, so you have what's called a pneumofathom meter, which is a it's basically an air hose that comes out down your umbilical, and it, it's to, to the open water, but it gives the topside a direct, very accurate reading of your depth. So we, you, you just say, "Give me a pneumo if you want to." That's how we used to fill our dry suits, actually, because we never had a, a dry suit inflator hooked to the to the line, right, to our our tethered line, our umbilical. So you would take that pneumo and stick it in your in one of your seals, and say, "Give me a pneumo," and they would. That's right, damn it! Give me a pneumo. I, when give I me say a pneumo, and stick it in your. <laughs> honey, give me a pneumo. She's not. Uh, she doesn't fall for that anymore. Ah, <laughs> uh, romance. <laughs> Diver romance. There's one, guys. Ask for a little pneumo. <laughs> but yeah, they're, so they're just commencing the diving operation. So this is this is kind of the cool part for us as divers, looking at the early development of using helium for deep, you know, deep dives. This is just deep air diving back in the day, right? The Navy had tables yeah. down to 300 feet. Yeah, but it was air. Later, later, this would become deep dive operations, and they w- would be on mix. He's on air, which, surprising, he's at 250 feet, seemingly operating pretty damn well. You know, uh, pretty coherently, right? Right. I mean, he, uh, they said he was cold. They said he was getting narked, you know, but he he figured it out and got that job, ju- you know, got that job done and got everything hooked up like he needed to do. It's it's pretty impressive. They said he was calling him. He made him call him Abraham Lincoln. They said he was what? I don't know what. Four scored seven years ago. <laughs> I descended upon the squalus. Yes. Sabitsky, <laughs> hook up the goddamn cables. No longer known as Sabitsky. I'm known as Squalus. <laughs> well, Brando, I, I think we're going to have to leave it here one more time. Yeah. We're, we're running. Uh, like I, I don't know if we got enough time to get to the whole. I don't think we have enough time for no, the, the McCann Rescue Chamber part. 
No, not to give it the the due service it needs, the due diligent um, attention it requires to. Yeah, we're going to have to turn this deep rescue into a three-parter. We, we did the part about the sinking. We did a part today, you know, about the, the first dive down there by old Sabitsky in the hard hat. And a little bit about their procedures coming up. And all of this stuff is new, so this is kind of cool. Well, this was, you know, the, the first rescue of submariners with the use of this, uh, you know, res- this rescue chamber. Exactly. And really being able to get get these divers or get, get these, these seamen <laughs> to the surface. We're very immature, aren't we? <laughs> well, Brando, I think we should call it here. Give me a pneumo and uh, let's <laughs> let's call this uh, let's call this a wrap for today. Uh, diver, diver to surface. Go ahead, diver. Give me a pneumo. Uh, Roger that. Numo coming with a cannonball. Cannonball. <laughs> hey, listen, Brando. This summer, it's not about the size of those cannonballs that you can make jumping off the side of that rescue <laughs> boat, the Falcon. It's about making a splash with our friends at Manscaped. Are there any semen in those cannonballs? <laughs> uh, there's semen. Those semen are up on the deck having a barbecue for the rest of the crew. And uh, they're going to make sure that the old grill master has the hottest dogs the summer's ever seen. <laughs> and you should be doing the same when you're out at your summertime cookout and barbecues. You got to let the meat speak for itself. And if you're using Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0, it's time to get ready, not sweaty, by going to manscaped.com and using the code TGDP for 20% off and free shipping, everybody. Like you last week, you know, uh, out at the, you know, the family uh, 4th of July party, out grilling. You didn't have to worry about no sweaty ball Brando. He was all clean and manscaped. <laughs> you want to you wanna be clean. You want to be smooth when it's hashtag lake life, baby. When, when you're balling up those, uh, those burgers, get ready to make some patties, you don't want no sweaty slappies. You don't want whapping sh- around. <laughs> sweaty balls. <laughs> Yeah. Good thing you use that Performance Package 4.0 cuz it has everything that you need to guarantee while you're grilling that you'll have the most mouth-watering treats at the party. <laughs> when does it end? When do these <laughs> when do the jokes end? <laughs> hey everybody, go get 20% off and free shipping with the code TGDP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code TGDP. Manscaped, it's the perfect way to get your patties sizzling hot this summer. Treat those semen right. Get Manscaped. <laughs> All right, Brando, now I can hook up my new mole. Let's get okay, out of here. Okay, here's your new mole, homie. All right, everybody, we'll talk to you next week. Damn Skippy. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando.
Bum, 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 bum,